Anyway, guys, well, I'm not kidding. Um, if it is your first time, it's a, it's a show. Um, there's moves and everything. Oh, okay, anyway, I'm off track already. Um, if it is your first time here, welcome. My name is John. I am the lead pastor. Appreciate you coming out and, and visiting us. Um, and so what we are doing today is we are uh, in week three of this series that we are calling Let's Try This Again. And um, essentially what we're doing, hold on one second, I got some technical difficulties down here. I see what you guys see. So what we're doing in this series is we are talking about faith. We're talking about faith. And this idea that we kind of talked about in week one and you sort of mentioned on the bumper up here is that many of us received our faith when we were children. Okay, and I don't know who that who gave you your faith. Maybe it's parents, a local church, a temple, a mosque, but a lot of us sort of received our faith when we were children. But when we became adults, the trials and the tribulations and the tensions of adult life began to sort of chip away at that what we thought to be a firm foundation. And it chipped away and chipped away and for some of us left us with nothing at all. And it wasn't that we sort of walked away from the faith. We just got to a place in our life where we said, eh, it's just not what it used to be. It's just not that important in, in my life anymore. And, and so what we're trying to do throughout this entire series is answer the question, what would it look like if we were to rebuild our faith as adults? If we were to sort of wipe the slate clean, start fresh, say, you know what, let's try this again and sort of build our faith from the ground up. And what we're trying to do essentially every single week is to reinstall the operating system of Christianity. Speaking of operating systems, I don't know if you guys are Apple users in this room. Of course you are. It's America. Okay. I'm here. Don't, don't do iOS 13. Don't do it yet. It has messed up my phone. Anyway, that's my iOS thing. Okay. Every single week we're trying to reinstall the operating system of Christianity. And the hope is that we can all now as DHC attenders have a firm foundation so that in our adult lives, our faith can not only survive the day-to-day, but to thrive. So in this larger conversation that we're having about restarting our faith, what I want to do today is I want to talk about where our faith, capital F, started. Where our faith started. Because whether you think about it or not, every single religion started somewhere, okay? Whether that's Christianity, Judaism, you know, Islam, Mormonism, Jehovah's Witness, you know, Scientology, every single one of these religions started with some person somewhere and at some point. Now, for the Christians in the room, you know, you may be a person who says, eh, I'm just not really interested in sort of the, the, the history of my faith because I really need to know what God can do for me now. Because I, I, you know, I, need a, I need a job, a house, a spouse, and a good grade. So really, what happened back then, it doesn't really concern me at the moment. And I get that. But since we are in a series where we're rebuilding our faith, we're starting from scratch, and we're, we're trying to build this firm foundation, we're trying to find out you know, where we're going with God, it's important to know where we've been with God. So today what I want to do is I want to have a history lesson. And I just want to bring us on a little bit of a journey to let us know where we have all come from in terms of our relationship with God. Now, something you might not know is that the world's three largest religions, I'm talking Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, they all claim that their starting point is the same. Now, their beliefs, if you don't know this, are wildly different. But they believe that, that all of their religions link back to the same 
man. And what I want to do today with you is to introduce you to this man. His name is Abraham. Okay, some of you already know this. This is good. You know where we're going. But before we talk about Abraham, we need to kind of set the context as to why God felt it was necessary to sort of begin this relationship with this man named Abraham. And to do this, we got to briefly go back to last week and talk about sin. Now, if you weren't here last week, if you have not had a chance to go back and watch it or listen to it, you need to because every single one of these weeks are now going to build on each other. But the gist of last week, for those of you who missed it, was, it, was a, an opportunity for us to sort of come to grips with the idea that maybe, just maybe, we're sinners. Okay, you know, we don't like that word. We know it kind of feels like it puts a bullseye on our back. But when Jesus stepped onto the scene, he goes, look, I, I hate to burst your bubble, but you're sinners, okay? And the sin in your life broke your relationship with the Heavenly Father. Now, a lot of us think that Jesus showed up to condemn us of our sins. But Jesus said, no, no, I'm here just to restore the relationship that's now been broken because of that sin. But I can't help you with that until I hear you say, I have sinned. Now, part of the reason that sin has made such a mess of our lives is because sin has made a mess of the world. And this sin problem has been around since the very beginning when it all started with Adam and Eve. Now, let me just say something quickly about Adam and Eve. You might not believe in Adam and Eve. That's your prerogative. I'm just going to let you know that Jesus believed in Adam and Eve. And if the guy who can predict his own death, burial, and resurrection believes in them, I'm with him, okay? So he believes in Adam and Eve, and he spoke about Adam and Eve. And one of the things that we learn about Adam and Eve is that when they disobeyed God, when they ate that fruit, okay? I don't know what kind of fruit it was, all right? It's not about the fruit. It's the fact that they disobeyed God. When they disobeyed God, they brought sin into this world. And, and with sin came death. And when they brought sin into this world, it changed the very fabric of the universe that we live in. And that's hard for us to sort of understand the far-reaching effects of sin because when we look around, all we know is what we know, right? We see, we see you know, relatively nice world, right? Beautiful locations. There's, there is a lot of evil in here, but like this is all we know. But what you may not realize is that when God created the world, he created it to be perfect and for us to be living with him perfectly, that there was a time when there was no death. There was a time before there was sickness. And we as humans were able to perfectly live in harmony with God. And when Adam and Eve sinned, that sin wrecked everything. And I mean everything. There was nothing that sin didn't wiggle its way into and begin to corrupt. I was trying to think of a, a good analogy to kind of talk about Sin And the best one that I could think of is sin is kind of like Chernobyl. I don't know if you watched that HBO miniseries, which was fantastic, by the way. Um, Chernobyl was a nuclear reactor that exploded in Belarus back in the 1980s. And when it exploded, it impacted everything around it. The environment, the land, the animals, the produce, the water, even down to the smallest human cells. Sin is Chernobyl on an infinitely larger scale. Because when sin exploded into this world, it brought with it murder, death, hurricanes, and, and, and the worst of all, it, it broke our relationship with God. 
Now, when all of this took place back in the Garden of Eden, God at that moment could have just wiped his hands of earth. He, he could have just said, you know, I, I told you not to do it, I, I, but now, you gotta, now that you've made your bed, lie in it. But Scripture says that God loved us too much to leave us in our own mess, and he set out to fix the sin problem. And as early as the Garden of Eden, I'm talking chapter 3 in the Bible, God made the decision that he was going to use Jesus Christ himself to have victory over sin and death. But the world was not ready for Jesus yet. Primarily because the world really didn't even know who God the Father was yet. So he first had to sort of introduce himself to the world. He had to begin a relationship somewhere with someone. And in 1876 B.C., that's before Christ, God sort of waded in to our world of sin, and he made first contact with Abraham. Now, why did he choose Abraham? I don't really know. There was nothing particularly special about Abraham. He was not particularly brave. He was certainly not well-known. He was just a normal person, which I guess makes sense because what we see throughout all of Scripture is that God always chose imperfect people to do his work. And so I guess this was just him setting the precedent as how he was going to use humans. Now, we have this very first conversation that the God of the universe had with Abraham. And we find it in Genesis chapter 12. It says this. The Lord had said to Abram, let me pause, because already you may be confused. Abraham's name wasn't always Abraham, it used to be Abram. At some point, God changed his name and said, hey, from this point forward, I'm calling you Abraham. Jesus did this a lot also. I don't, they must like just changing people's names, okay? So I'm going to interchangeably use Abraham's name with Abram. Just don't get confused. It's not that big of a deal right now. So Abram is Abraham. The Lord had said to Abram, go from your country your people, and your father's household to the land that I will show you. So essentially, God is saying, look, I I need you to leave every single thing that you know, every person that you know. I need to isolate you. In essence, he goes, I want to make you into a control group because I'm going to do something special through you. What I'm going to do through you is going to impact the entire universe, the world, and everything in it. So you know, nothing major, okay? This is all, Abraham's hearing all of this for the very first time. And God says, I'm also going to give you a couple of promises, okay? So take notes. He says, promise number one, I will make you into a great nation. And this happened. In fact, the Jewish nation, the nation of Israel say, we are this great nation. This is what, when God talks about this, we are the very group that God is talking about in this promise. But not to be outdone, the Arab nation, they say, "Mm, not so fast. We, in fact, are that great nation that God is talking about. And we can let those two groups argue amongst themselves as to who was, in fact, the very first great nation talked about in this promise. But what we do know is this. Many, many great nations came from one man, Abraham. The second promise. God said, I will bless you and I will make your name great. So just as a test to, make, to see whether or not this promise um, actually happened. By a show of hands, I'm actually going to ask you to raise your hands for once. How many of you in this room have ever heard of Abraham in some form or fashion? Raise your hand. Let me see. Put the hands up. Good. All right. Pretty much everybody. Okay. Pretty much everybody. I think that's amazing. I just think it's amazing that 4,000 years later on a different continent, when we're speaking different languages, we are still talking about this guy named Abraham. And in fact, 
If you've ever met someone named Abraham, this is where his name came from. Third, he says this, and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Meaning, influenced by, better off because of. Now, the Arab nation will say, the world is better off because of us and what, when, what we have done in this world. And, and the Jewish nation says, no, 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 no. The world is blessed because of who we are and what we have done. And then the Christians now were saying, no, actually, it's us because, you know, we've created hospitals, we've created orphanages, we go on mission trips all over the world. And I think God hears us and goes, well, actually, you're all right. I mean, the world has been impacted, benefited by, and influenced by all three of your people groups. But I think at a deeper level, what God was talking about here, see, he knew something. He knew that Abraham, who at this point had no children, would one day have a descendant who was born 2,000 years later in a small town called Bethlehem. So God is sort of giving all these promises to Abraham. Abraham is hearing all these things, and he kind of stops and goes, well, this is all great. I don't really understand all this. This sounds amazing, but I got to just tell you, the one thing that I really want is a son. And if you're going to be giving me something, it sounds like you're going to be giving me something. I don't have an heir. And, and, I, and I really don't want to have to give whatever this is to my servant, Eleazar. So, so God, the one thing that I want, perhaps more than anything, is a child. God says to him, no, your servant will not be your heir, for you will have a son of your own who will be your heir. In other words... Abraham, I know you're 75. I know your wife, Sarah, is pretty much the same. I understand, looks old, but trust me, okay? You will have a son together. And then he kind of says, you know what? You got a second? Follow me real quick. And he, he brings him outside. And he goes, he took him outside and he said, look up into the sky and count the stars if you can which I think is like a challenge there. And I was thinking about this ability to count the stars. Now, where I grew up, I grew up in New Jersey, a town called Montclair, about 10 miles outside of New York City. At nighttime, because of the light pollution that came from New York City, we could see the moon and maybe one star, okay? It was, all we saw was basically an orange glow at nighttime, all right? And so for me, it was not a challenge at all to count the stars, okay? But I was, but I was able to get you a picture of what the night sky looks like, where Abraham was located at this time. Now, granted, this is from 2019, but here's what Abraham would have seen that night, which is amazing. And even in this picture, you can see that there's light pollution, a little bit of glow, but that night when God brought him outside the tent and he goes, take a look up into the sky, Abraham would have seen an innumerable amount of stars. He would have seen the Milky Way. And as he and God peered up, at the amazing body of stars, God said to him, that's how many descendants you will have. It's amazing. Now, what happens next? What happens next is incredible. What happens next echoes through time to this very day. What happens next is, is the basis of what Jesus himself will begin to teach when he comes on to the earth. What happens next shows us that it is actually possible for a human being to have a relationship with God. 
What we see next opened up the, the pathway for us to know that God himself can accept you and that you as a human can have peace with God. And so as God the Father told Abraham about these three amazing promises as he showed him the night sky and said, you will have this many descendants. The author of Genesis writes that Abram believed the Lord. Abram goes, Lord, I know we've just met and you've made some bold claims and I don't understand how you're, how you're going to do it all, but I believe you. I trust in you. Scripture says that he, God, credited to him as righteousness. All week long I practiced saying credit it, hit, credit it, credit, credit it, hit, credit it, him, okay? Let me porky pig it for you, okay? God's saying, because of your faith in me, I am giving you the gift of righteousness. Because you said that you trust me, I am giving you the gift of right standing. Because you believe that I am who I say that I am and I can do what I say that I can do, I accept you. And this will become one of the most important verses in the entire Holy Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament. And this happens before the Ten Commandments. It happens before the law. It happens before Judaism is even a thing. It certainly happens before Jesus, 1,876 years before Jesus to be exact. And what is going on in this moment is God the Father is laying the groundwork for us as humans to understand that trusting God results in a right relationship with God. In this moment, this is the first instance, just the seeds of what Jesus himself would teach, that when you believe in me, by faith alone, you can have right standing with God. See, God made it so simple, so simple. All he wants is us to say, I believe. I trust you. And yet we as humans, as we always do, we like to overcomplicate things, okay? And this was no exemption. And and 2,000 years later, essentially, the Jewish people would say, well, actually, if you want right standing with God, all you need to do is to be Jewish. And then Jesus showed up on the scene, and they said, nice to meet you. We don't really need you because we're related to Abraham. We're the descendants. He was made right with God. And because we are related to him, we ourselves have been made right with God. 600 years after Jesus was born, Muslims would come by and they go, well, actually, if you want to know the truth, if you want to be made right with God, you need to do good works. And then when you die, Allah will measure your good works against the evil that you've done, and he will make a decision whether or not you have right standing, but you won't know until you die. And then about 35 minutes after Jesus went back to heaven, the Christians started getting involved in this. They go, well, you know what? I know you're a Christian, but you actually need to become Jewish first and then do the law perfectly. And another group said, well, that can't be right because these Gentiles, they don't, they don't know the law at all. How can we expect them to do the law at all? And then somebody in the back of the room was like, I thought we just needed faith in Jesus. And they're like, no, that can't possibly be. That's way too simple, okay? And for hundreds and hundreds of years, honestly, To this very day, the church is debating amongst itself, how do you know when you're approved by God? 
How do you know when you've been made right with God? How do you know when that relationship that was broken by sin has been repaired? Is it by birth? Is it by being related to someone, maybe Abraham? Is it by our behavior and doing good works? Is, 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 it, is it by just having a faith in God? Is it some combination of all three? Okay? Meanwhile, 4,000 years ago, God made it very clear that the way to be made right with him is trust. Very, very simple. And what amazes me is that here in this church, in every church across this nation, in every church across the world for now 2,000 years, we have been saying that faith alone in Jesus Christ makes you right with God. And the seed for this idea that faith and trust alone opens up the pathway for a relationship with God started 4,000 years ago with one man that three religions lay claim to. I just think that's incredible. Now, since we're having a history lesson, there is one question that I'm sure is on some of your minds, because I've mentioned it a couple of times and I can see your heads kind of cocked to the side. I know that if I don't spend time answering this question, it's the kind of question that as soon as I get off the stage and I'm done, you're going to find me and ask me, or you're going to email me and you're going to call me. Because I think the question that perhaps is on many of your minds is, where do Muslims fit into all this? Because You've heard me mention the Arab nation. You've heard me mention the Muslims. We, we've been talking about this. They, they say that their religion started with Abraham. So how does all of this fit in together? So let me just say this. By answering this question, it will actually enable me to tell you the rest of Abraham's story. And it's a great story. But here's the truth. There's a lot of detail. And our time is limited. And your attention span is getting shorter. So what I'm going to do, okay, what I'm going to do Okay, because I know you. Okay, what I'm going to do is I'm going to distill down potentially thousands of years of history, decades of scripture into the shortest, most concise story possible to answer this question and to wrap up the story of Abraham. But here's why I say all this. I'm going to leave out a lot of details. And you need to know these details. And so what I want to encourage you to do this week, when you get time, on your own, read Genesis chapter 15 through 21. This sounds like a ton of reading. It's like eight pages, so you can make it through, okay? But it's important because this is going to more fully explain everything that I'm about to tell you at a greater level. And, and let me also say this before I dive into answering this. The Bible does not make a connection between Abraham and the Islamic religion. It does make a connection between Abraham and the Arab nation. Muhammad himself, he is the one that links that religion back to the Bible. I'm not saying he's incorrect. I'm just letting you know that it's not found in our holy text. So with that being said, in about the year 600 A.D., the prophet Muhammad linked himself personally to Abraham through Ishmael. The big question is, Okay, who is Ishmael? Okay, who's this guy Ishmael? He seems like he's the missing link. So to do that, we need to finish up the message for today. So remember, we said that Abraham had great faith, and he did. 
Under that starry night, God made all those promises to him. He said, I believe you are who you say you are. I trust that you can do what you say you can do. I have faith in you. And God made him right because of that. Abraham had great faith. But, and this is a big but, his faith wasn't perfect. And at the age of 75, God made the promise about his descendants. He goes, you will have a son. Trust me. And Abraham believed. But 10 years would go by after that night under those gorgeous stars. And Abraham and his wife Sarah would still not have a child yet. And all the while, you know, Sarah's like tapping her feet. And she's going, what, what's going on? What's going on? What's going on? And so she decides to take matters into her own hands. And she says, Abraham, I know God made us his promise, but it's been 10 years. He hasn't delivered on this promise yet. So I've got a plan. Hear me out. He says, Abraham, go and sleep with my servant, whose name is Hagar. Perhaps I can have children through her. So Abraham hears this plan. He likes this plan. And he, and he carries out this plan. And so he goes and he sleeps with Hagar and Hagar gets pregnant. And almost immediately, it causes tension inside of his marriage with Sarah. Shocker, okay? Almost immediately, Hagar becomes condescending to Sarah because she could get pregnant and Sarah couldn't. Sarah is now just brutally mean to Hagar. It is just a mess. You've got to go read it. It's just this whole thing was a bad idea. And inside this household between Hagar and Sarah, it gets worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. And finally, Hagar's like, I can't. I've got to get out of here. And she runs away. She runs away. And God the Father chases after her, finds her, and says this to Hagar. Return to your mistress and submit to her authority. Then he added, I will give you more descendants than you can count. So Abraham's mistress, who is now pregnant with his illegitimate son, appears to be receiving, at least in part, the blessing that was given to Abraham. Now, it does make sense. I mean, this child, although he is illegitimate, is still Abraham's blood. God continues. You are now pregnant, and you will give birth to a son, and you are to call him Ishmael. Ishmael. Finally, we meet Ishmael, okay? The connection that the prophet Muhammad would use to link back his religion to Abraham. And then God gives a very unusual prophecy. Now, remember, before I read this, this was written 4,000 years ago. This was written 2,600 years before Islam was created. This was written 2,000 years before Jesus would be even born. God looks at Hagar and says, This son of yours will be a wild man as untamed as a wild donkey. He will raise his fist against everyone, and everyone will be against him. Yes, he will live in open hostility against all of his relatives. Not the prophecy you want to hear about your coming child. Okay? But let me talk about this wild donkey thing for a second here. Because this sounds like God is insulting Ishmael. He's not. 
This is an ancient saying, and it's just a description as to how someone would live. What he's saying here is that your child, Ishmael, who's coming, will live like a wild donkey, meaning he will live open, free, roaming the deserts. Think, nomadic, Bedouin tribes. Ishmael's born. Thirteen years go by. Ishmael's about 13, 14 years old at this point. Something massive has just happened. For the first time, God has created a covenant with man, between God and man, a legal document, if you will. And this is one of the most important, hugest events in Jewish religion. Let me show you where this happens, because this is important. It says this. This is God speaking. I will confirm my covenant with you and your descendants after you from generation to generation. This is the everlasting covenant. Here's what it is, he says. I will always be your God and the God of your descendants after you. To ratify this sort of covenant on Abraham's side, every male heir was supposed to be circumcised. And this circumcision will become a massive, massive issue when Jesus gets on to the scene. But notice here, which this is now 25 years after that original meeting under the stars, God is still talking about Abraham having descendants. Abraham and Sarah have yet to have a child. 25 years later. Finally, at the age of 99, Sarah gets pregnant. And I hate to have to put that picture in your mind, but that's what this, okay? That is what the scripture says, okay? She finally gets pregnant at the age of 99. God comes back into the picture and he says to this, you will name him Isaac and I will confirm my covenant with him and his descendants as an everlasting covenant. Essentially, listen guys, I told you this 25 years ago. You're going to have a son together. Now you've had him. This is the one and I'm going to confirm my covenant with Isaac. Well, now God has to tie up some loose ends. And he says, as for Ishmael, I will bless him also. Just as you have asked, he will become the father of 12 princes and I will make him a great nation. But my covenant will be confirmed with Isaac. Essentially, he says, look, you had Ishmael. That was not my plan for your life. But I love you, Abraham. You've asked me to, to bless your son, Ishmael, and I'm going to do that. But you need to know that the groundwork that I started laying with you 25 plus years ago, that was meant for Isaac. Isaac is finally born. Ishmael's about 14, 15 years at that time. Scripture tells us that Ishmael's hostility towards Isaac was unbearable. God said this was going to happen. The, the hostility inside the household was so bad that Sarah said, Abraham, he's, he's got to go. You, you got to make Ishmael leave because we can't have this inside of our house anymore. You need to kick him out. Now, when she made this request of Abraham, it, it really destroyed him. Because say what you will about Ishmael, Ishmael was still Abraham's son. And it's just this idea of making him leave, he, he couldn't wrap his mind around it. So God shows up to console Abraham and to give him a little bit of wisdom as to what to do with, with this request. God says, 
do whatever Sarah tells you. For Isaac is the son through whom your descendants will be counted. But I will make a great nation, pardon me, I will make a nation of the descendants of Hagar's son because he is your son too. And after hearing this from God, Abraham packed up Ishmael's stuff and scripture says that Ishmael left for the east and his descendants would be founders of the Arab nation. Now, I was careful how I worded this because there is debate over this. There is a school that says that Ishmael was the founder of the entire Arab nation. There's a school that says that Abraham is the founder of particular tribes within the Arab nation. But whatever the case may be, 2,600 years after Ishmael left that house and walked towards the east, he would have a descendant whose name was Muhammad, who would create Islam. And he traced his roots all the way back to one man named Abraham. It's an amazing story to see how all of these faiths have been interconnected back to one man. So what's the practical? What do you do with a message like this? First of all, there is so much that you can learn from Abraham. And we've just scratched the surface. But what is clear is that millions upon millions upon millions of people have looked to this man as the founder of their faith, where everything started. But there's only one thing that I want you to wrestle around with this week. As we're trying to restart our faith, so to speak, build it from the ground up, there's only one thing that I want you to be chewing on this week, and it's a question. What if... What if the starting point for a relationship with God is as simple as trusting Him? Because we complicate things. And I don't know where your faith journey started. I don't know where you grew up. I don't know what your house looked like. I don't know what faith you may have been brought up in. But a lot of us, a lot of us have told ourselves or have been taught that if we want to be accepted by God, if we want to have right standing with God, then we need to be related to someone. And maybe that's Abraham. Or, or maybe for you, because your parents maybe for, were Christians, you thought, well, well, just because they were Christians, now I'm one too. And I've, I've been made right with God because of that. Or maybe you're somebody who, who, who said, you know, by being a good person, by just living a good life and, and doing good deeds, that is going to make me right with God. Or perhaps you said, just by faith in God alone, that's going to make me right with him. Or, or some combination of all three. I don't know. But what would happen in your life if this were true? If it really were as simple as trusting God, that you could begin a relationship with God by saying, I trust you. Because remember, one man's choice to trust God changed the world forever. Now, you might be here in this room and you say, I don't, I don't understand it all. I, I know God has plans for my life or, or someone has told me that. It doesn't all make sense, and I get that. But what if you followed Abraham's lead and said, I can't say that I get it all. And a lot of this may seem far-fetched, but I believe. I trust you. 
How could your life be changed today? How could the lives of those around you be impacted by you taking that small step of faith and saying, okay, I trust you, God. I trust you, God. I'm listening. Let me pray for you. Dear Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for our opportunity to be here today. I want to thank you, Lord, that for 4,000 years you have preserved this account so that we as humans could see that so many years ago you made it so simple, that you wanted to begin a relationship with us, Lord, and that journey begins with something as simple as saying, I trust you. And yet, ever since that night, under that gorgeous starry sky, we have overcomplicated it. And Lord, I can't speak for everybody in this room, but I know myself, I've asked, how do I know if I could be made right with you? Well, your plan since day one was to send your son Jesus to this world. And he carried the torch, and he said that faith alone in him could repair that broken relationship, that one that we're all, whether we know it or not, are dying to have fixed. That void that we feel in our life, Lord, can only be filled by having a right standing with you. And that all starts with saying, I trust you. I believe. Be with us today. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen.